not getting a lot of we're getting a lot of affirmation. I love I love I love these nights. They're great nights. Hey, can we can we pray again? Is that all right? You can never have enough prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly God, we just want to seek you tonight. We want to hear from you. We want to be connected to you. We pray, Jesus, that you would speak to us tonight. That it wouldn't be me that speaks, Lord, but that you would take hold of this and you would speak. Because, God, we just want to be faithful to you. We just want to love you and be loved by you. We want to live your way in this world so we can see people come to know you. We can see communities transformed. We can see your love spread across this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So about four, over four years ago, um, I somehow convinced the lovely Ashley uh, to agree to marry me. Um, who here is married or engaged to be married? Oh, only, not many, not many. Um, I'll tell you a bit, a little bit about how I, I convinced her um, to marry me. It involved uh, beer, uh, because Ashley loves beer. It involved burritos because Ashley loves burritos. It involved big uh, light-up words that said, marry me. Uh, it involved a fire in an old church fireplace. It involved brownies, because Ashley likes brownies. Um, and if you ask me, it was perfect timing. We'd had, I, I had set three dates with her, because I'm not really someone who did dates. And so she knew, oh, he's going to take me on a date. So... He's probably going to propose on those dates. And so I hoodwinked her because I didn't propose on the first date. I proposed on the second date. And I don't even know if I did the third date. Yeah, that was bad. But anyway, she said yes, which is good. Good end of the story. Uh, and from that point, we spent six months preparing for our wedding. Now, we kind of like get it done, people. So we're like, we're just going to smash it out. And we, be- we booked uh, a beautiful wedding. We had uh, a church out in amongst the vineyards. Um, we had wood oven pizza uh, and the reception under a, a big oak tree. And those are the three things that we really wanted. Now, if you, when, you, when you get around to planning a wedding or if you can remember planning your wedding, you put a lot of emotional energy into this event. You, you uh, put a lot of finances, uh, you put a lot of time working on the details. Uh, and then when you get there on the day, uh, it just happens. And then it's over. Uh, and you got one slice of wood oven pizza and you're unsure how you only got one slice of wood oven pizza when it was your wedding and you paid for the wood oven pizza. Am I right? And, and, so the, um, and so you go away afterwards, you go on your honeymoon, and then you get back. And then you realise that you have to work out how to live with another person who now has your whole life, basically. You can't make financial decisions without talking to them first because it's their money too. Suddenly you have to your house up would, is different because there are certain drawers that the cutlery is supposed to go into and if you get that wrong there's an argument stuff like that so you've got to work out what it looks like to live together you have this event that happens and then from that point everything is different it's similar to the birth of my son Drew who's being very cute right now um, nine months preparation and then the event happens and then from that point sleep is gone that's just how it works you have an event that changes everything. It changes the trajectory of your life. You've got to work out what it looks like to live with that. You've got to work out what it looks like to clothe him and feed him and make sure that he's 
loved and adored and cared for. Um, and he's going, hey, here's Matthew leading me out of all of my money. Well, I do that for my old man, so it's not fair, right? Uh, and it's, just like it's, it's the same kind of thing when you graduate high school. Um, you spend 13 years doing a nine to three, sometimes at the same school, sometimes different, and then you graduate. And you either graduate by standing up in you know, fancy clothes and getting a piece of paper or just walking out of the school and never coming back. And that'd be your graduation. Um, but from that point on, everything is different. You no longer have the, the system, the security of, I know where I'm going to be most, da like most days of a week, 9 to 3 p.m. You've got to work out what you're going to do with your life. You've got to work out whether you're going to work or go to uni. You've got to work out how to pay insurance. You've got to find a house because your mum wants to use it for a craft room until she kicks you out. You've you got all these new things that you've got to work out because this event has happened and because it every, everything has changed, everything is different. And there, there are lots of these events that happen in our lives. We have to learn to live in light of it. Uh, and, and there was this event that happened um, that changed the whole world. And it happened 2,000 years ago. There was this, this rabbi, this teacher, um, in the, it came from this backwater town of Nazareth. And, and he spent uh, three years walking around the, the country of Israel, uh, performing miracles, declaring that the kingdom of God has happened, healing people, uh, declaring, claiming that he was God. Uh, and because of that, the religious leaders, um, the, the military officials of the day, they had him uh, strung up and murdered. Uh, and they had him put up on a cross uh, with his flesh torn and beaten and bruised um, with a crown of thorns on his head um, and had him killed for a crime that he didn't commit. And that wouldn't be any old story. That, wouldn't be, that would be a run-of-the-mill story. Um, because crackpots who claim they're God, who do crazy things, get murdered or killed or, all the time. Like, that's just something that happens all through human history. But what happened next is the thing that makes it extraordinary. It's that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, and, and we know this because his disciples saw him. Many, many disciples saw him. Uh, and he ate breakfast with them. And they, he let them stick their fingers in the holes in their hands, which is just weird. Um, and... And, and that wouldn't be that big of a deal. I mean, you know, people make claims about anything to keep things going. But then the thing catches on. It becomes like a vi almost like a viral video, right? And it just sweeps the country. Um, and and the, the, the original followers of Jesus get sent out and sent out. And, and the, the news that they bring um, transforms people's lives. It transforms community. It's almost like God himself is going with them. And, and this event... Um, it's not just a, a cool event that happened, but it, it is literally the hinge point for human history. No civilization in the world uh, is the same because of that event. All of them have been impacted by it in some ways, good or bad, um, as Christianity and the gospel and the good news of Jesus and the resurrection event has gone out into the world. Everything is different. And that's where we come to... Uh, and then the, the, the good news comes to this, this little city in, in ancient Greece that's now modern-day Turkey called Ephesus. Uh, and, and likely Paul, who's writing the letter that we're going to read out tonight, because um, we didn't read it, did we? Does anyone bring up 1 Timothy 5 and like, come and read it in a sec? Is that all right? That's small enough. We can do that. Zach, would you like to do that? Thanks. Um, No, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and, and he writes this letter because um, this gospel event had 
had come out to the town of Ephesus, and we're going to read what he says. It's up there now. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has, gra- has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them, so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. The scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the the elect angels to keep these instructions without without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on, on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. So the gospel has come to uh, the church in Ephesus. Um, and what's interesting, um, you guys are going through 1 Timothy. What I'm interested in is why does Paul write this letter to Timothy and the church of Ephesus? Because if you've read a lot of the New Testament, a lot of it is theology, unpacking what it means that uh, Jesus raised from the dead. Most of his letters are just correcting bad theology. And yet here he is writing this super practical, super down-to-earth letter to the church there. And what, what he's doing, and I know I'll unpack uh, uh, the main chunk of what he's doing in this passage, uh, is he's helping Timothy to outwork the practical implications 
of the resurrection of Jesus in community. So Jesus has been raised. The gospel has come to them. They've met with the living God because his spirit is in them. And now Paul is writing a letter to go, hey, you should drink a little wine because you're getting sick a lot. And, uh, and the main passage that, uh, the main practical application of this passage of, of chapter 5 um, is that Paul talks about church uh, community as an hour, as in the context of family. Uh, Galatians 4 says, uh, because of Jesus' life and sacrifice, God has adopted us into his family. So if we're all adopted into the same family, then we're brothers and sisters. Um, and so there are two practical applications uh, if the church is a family. The first one is that God has created earthly families so that young and old have someone to look after them, and spiritual families so that those who have no one to look after them have care because the widows were the lowest of the low. So you see what he's doing there. He's encouraging them to see their older men as if they are fathers, their younger men as if they're brothers, their mother, the older women as if they're mothers, and the young women as if they're sisters because it's a family. Church is an extended family. Uh, and that's a practical outworking of the fact that God has, through the resurrection of Jesus, has adopted us as sons and daughters of Him. And this can be a really challenging idea for us, the fact that, that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have to be family with one another um, because we have this Western idea of family, which is that um, it's very individualistic. It's very much about me. So I grow up with my parents and then I leave and I get my own place and sometimes maybe someone else joins me and we get married, maybe. Um, and, but family is very removed, very much about the individual. I was having coffee with um, one of my mates. His name is Cyrus. He's a second-gen Chinese Christian, which means that his parents were born overseas, um, but he was born in Australia. So the culture that he grew up with at home um, was very much his Chinese culture, but the culture that he grew up in in school was very much Western culture, hyper-individualistic. Um, and so he, he runs into all these really interesting um, clashes between the perspectives with his family because his dad would just come over and borrow his stuff and just take stuff. And he'll, he'll come over and he'll say, I need this fry pan, I'm taking it. And he'll go, but that's my fry pan, Dad. Don't you already have a fry pan? And he's like, no, 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 it's, it's our fry pan. Your stuff is my stuff and my stuff is your stuff. It's our stuff, we're family. So I have right to just take whatever I want. That's, um, that's how it works. That's what family means. And that's really challenging for us because does that mean that if we are family and then, like everybody has right to each other's things if we need them? Like that's a really practical, challenging outworking of what the gospel means. And, and in a way, look, it's, it's actually quite beautiful because what are possessions anyway? What do they really mean? I mean, if people are in need, shouldn't we give to them? And the implications go further than that. The resurrection event means the world has changed. We have access to God himself. God has done everything for us to be in a relationship with him. And it has nothing to do with our goodness or badness. God is king. He has made a way. His kingdom is here. And it comes with freedom and joy and transformation. But what we can do is not live like that's reality. The gospel has come. Jesus has done absolutely everything for us to have communion with God, relationship with God, but we can live like that isn't reality. When you get married, you can decide to continue to live like you're single. You can decide that you can continue to have your own bank account, that you're going to wash only your own dishes and wash only your own clothes and, and just spend money how you like. But that's, that really won't work out very well for you, for one. Um, and it's the same when you graduated high school. You could live like you didn't graduate high school 
and you could spend the rest of your life at home if your parents let you and only emerge for ice cream late at night if you need it. Now you can live like, like it, the reality hasn't happened. Um, we can do that. And in the same way, we, we can live like Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Even though this, this event has happened that has changed the, the entire cosmos and reality. Uh, and we can, we can stay addicted. We can stay trapped by things. We can stay bitter in unforgiveness. We can stay hopeless. We can stay depressed. Uh, or we can live from the new reality of what has happened. We can live from our marriages. We can live from adulthood instead of ignoring the reality of that an event has occurred and we should live the applications of that. And we can live from the resurrection of Jesus. We can live from the freedom that was bought for us. We can live connected to the love and intimacy of God. And we can live from hope. A new reality demands a new way of life. And so the question I want to leave you with tonight is how are you living out the resurrection in your life? How are you living out what the, God, the, good, the good news of what Jesus has done for you? Because the resurrection has practical implications. Jesus practically rose from the dead. It's a real-life, physical thing. Not just for you, but for the whole of Parafield Gardens and Burton and Paralawi and Parafield, wherever you live, wherever you're from. The good news of Jesus has implications that are practical. They mean freedom. They mean social support. They mean advocacy. They mean people becoming who they were created to be. And so, if you were Paul, and you were writing a letter to the church in Parafield Gardens, what would you include? How would you outwork the implications of the resurrection of Jesus to this community? What does this community need to look like? How does it need to be structured? How do you need to love one another? How do you need to love your community? But then take it a level deeper than that. If Paul was writing a letter to you, if it was one Zach or one Jeff, what would Paul write to you? What do you need to do? How do you need to live? What do you need to, what and who do you need to pray for? How do you need to order your life? How do you need to spend your money? Who do you need to forgive? What do you need to repent from? How do you need to use your time? What do you need to quit? Who amongst you has need that you personally could meet? And who do you need to stop listening to? See, on that cross, marked by a crown of thorns, the kingdom of God was coronated with Jesus as king. We can now experience what it looks like when God is in charge, when God rules and reigns. The life that we were created to live with God in the garden, we can experience here and now today, where we are, little pockets of heaven, little pockets of Eden. This is practical. A garden is a very practical thing. God's rule and reign is practical. It's not religious. It's not spiritual. It's a revolution. And if you can't see this, if you struggle to believe this, if you struggle to believe that God can have a real-world impact on your life and the lives of those around you that you love, then maybe you've forgotten just the extent of the good news of what God has done for you and what God has done in your life. That while you were an enemy, while you were an enemy of God, He died for you. That you might be able to choose to be with Him forever in eternity. It's not about you, for one, because that's what God has done. It's not about how good we are or how bad we are or how far we've gone.
gone we think we are. It's all about what God has done. It's all about what he's done for us. And he's done it at a great cost. God's grace was costly. It cost Jesus something on that cross. And so how do we live from that place? How do we live in, because of what happened, not for that? How do we live from God's love, not for God's love? Because God wants to bring about a work of completion in us, and that is resurrection work. He wants to renew us, remold us into the person he created us to be. This event has occurred in human history. Everything is different. Because of it, everything has changed. Jesus was raised from the dead. Tonight, I want you to ponder about how you're going to live in light of that. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for everything that you've done for us. That on that cross, you took all of our all of our sin, all of our rebellion to you upon yourself, and you died the death that wasn't yours and paid the debt that was ours so that we could be with you forever. And that is astounding and incredible and overwhelming and emotional, Lord, um, because we don't deserve that, but you love us. And not only did you die for us, Lord, but you adopted us into your family so that we could be your son and your daughter, so we could be a part of your family. We could be friends of God, not servants. It's astounding to us you actually like us. You want to be with us. We are no longer your enemies, even though we put ourselves in that position. And you brought us back to you. And what a wonderful place that is to be, in your presence together. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. Please stand for our last song.